This week um, has been a tough one for many individuals. Uh, it has been one that has caused uh, the Christian community in particular to, to assess some things. It's interesting where we land in the book of Mark tonight and how it might actually have something to do with what's going on in the world around us. I want to begin by reading uh, from Mark chapter 6. This is going to bring to a conclusion the first major section of the book. Our plan is to, uh, after this week, to pause here and then discuss some other things throughout the month of July and then come back to Mark uh, probably in, in August. We will finish this book at some point. Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given to him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. The word of God for the people of God. This story um, sort of encapsulates a major theme that has been uh, brought to the fore throughout the first five chapters of the book of Mark. This is a book that doesn't have the birth narratives. It just basically plops Jesus down at the beginning of his ministry and elicits the question from folks seeing his ministry, hearing his teaching, seeing the miracles that he is performing. The question is, who is this? We see this especially in this uh, passage where this question is particularly focused around two different questions. First, what is this wisdom, this, this way that Jesus teaches in a way that's very different from the old? Again, that battle cry of new wine into new wineskins that was raised um, earlier in the book where Jesus is saying the old structures of religion cannot contain what I am doing, both in word and in deed, this message of the kingdom of God that's invading earth here and now with something that's completely radical, something that's completely different, something that's completely foreign at the time. And as people are seeing and hearing Jesus, the question that is raised is, what is this teaching? Who is this person? What is this wisdom with which he teaches individuals? They also ask the question, what are these miracles in particular, the ones that he had, that the, the crowd had heard Jesus performing in the past? What about the things of casting out demons? What about the things of making the paralyzed person walk? What about the things of healing the woman with the issue of blood um, or raising Jairus' daughter from the dead? What is this wisdom and what are these signs and miracles that Jesus is performing? In this passage, the question is, what's this wisdom that has been given 
him, that is to Jesus. And here a lot of scholars will make note that this is a divine passive where most people will think that Jesus has been supernaturally gifted with this wisdom. The question then becomes, has Jesus been supernaturally gifted this wisdom by God? Or has Jesus been supernaturally gifted this wisdom by the forces of evil? You see, Mark, throughout these first few chapters, is, is juxtaposing the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God. As Jesus shows up on the scene, some of the first things that he's doing is casting out demons as if to say, I am stronger than you. There's this cosmic battle, in a sense, between these two powerful entities. And as people are seeing Jesus teach and preach and perform miracles, it's not a question of whether or not he's been endowed with supernatural powers. The question is, who is the agent that is empowering him? And we'll see how this story in particular begins to answer that question. But we're, we're noticing things about Jesus. He's different. He's radical. He's someone that could not be contained in the old. The second thing that we see in this story is another major theme in the first few chapters of Mark, one of rejection. Throughout uh, these stories, we've seen Jesus interacting with people and being rejected by them. In particular, we've seen the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees and the Herodians and the religious leaders of the time seeing what Jesus is doing. And then in Mark chapter three, it says that they begin to plot his death. This isn't true of all of them, but there's a large contingent of people who are uh, moving towards ending Jesus' life because they can't understand who he is or what he's about or what he's doing. What he's doing does not fit into the old structures of religion at the time. Jesus is also rejected by his own family. When they hear about the things that he's doing, they, they reach the conclusion, he's crazy. We need to go get him because he's lost his mind. And we meet Jesus in that moment where uh, somebody comes into the home and says, Jesus, your family's outside. And he, he launches into that very esoteric, very weird Jesus moment where he says, who are my mother and my brothers and my sisters? Your mom and, and your, your brothers, they're, they're right outside Jesus. It's like that, that weird moment where um, Jesus launches into this spiritual teaching about who constitutes his family. But in that story, Jesus' family is, in a sense, rejecting him, rejecting the things that he's doing and rejecting the things that he's about. We've also seen last week a Gentile city, either um, Gerasa or Gadara or Gergesa, it doesn't really much matter. Um, there's a Gentile town in the Decapolis, a non-Jewish town where Jesus is out near the graves interacting with someone who's possessed by many, many, many demons. Jesus, in a sense, is rendering himself to be unclean because he's surrounded by death and he's surrounded by uh, non-Israelites at this time. And as Jesus casts out the demons, and in a very weird twist, they take over a bunch of pigs, like 2,000 of them, and those pigs run off a cliff and die, I guess. It's just a very strange story, but when people hear about that, they say, you've got to go. We don't understand what's going on, and you, you need to leave. It's not a, a story of embracing Jesus as the powerful wonder worker. It's not even seeing Jesus as one who restores this person who, for all intents and purposes, has gone crazy and then became in his right mind. Someone who is completely transformed by the power of God at that moment. These people didn't really want anything to do with that and they forced Jesus 
to leave. And now in this passage, Jesus has gone back across the Sea of Galilee. Last week, he was dealing with Jairus and, and Jairus's daughter and the woman with the issue of blood somewhere near Capernaum, and now he's gone farther south, and he's, he's ended up in Nazareth or near Nazareth. This is his own hometown. These are his people, the people that, as we'll see, saw little Jesus running around like little Abe with his crazy hair and like he's just so cute. Like they knew who Jesus was and that begins to, to make them ask questions. They say, isn't this Mary's son? It's weird, this is the only gospel that in, in the retelling of this story describes Jesus as Mary's son. And some people were saying that this was kind of a bust on Jesus because you didn't talk about um, family lines through the mom. So it was sort of a, a slam against Jesus. Uh, but here, isn't this Mary's son, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? We know this guy. And now somebody's saying that he's God. Somebody's saying that he's able to do great miracles and to restore people. It's not the Jesus I know. There's just one really great story um, in a non-accepted gospel. I believe it's the gospel of Thomas where we, we meet little schoolboy Jesus. There's not a lot of stories about Jesus as a kid, okay? We, we see Jesus as um, 12, 13-year-old boy in, in the temple, and he says something, again, very weird, don't you know I'd be about my father's business in the temple when his parents go to find him? But there's a story in the Gospel of Thomas where Jesus is out on the playground, sort of. This is like Jewish school, and Jesus is having a good time, and he takes this dirt and he molds it into the shape of a, a bird or something, and he throws it up, and it becomes a bird, and it flies away. <laughs> and I just pictured little crazy schoolboy Jesus, like he's the weird, stinky kid at the, at the lunch table that's kind of off to the side, and he's just really weird. I mean, who knows if that story happened, but this is probably similar to the mindset of these people. I remember smelly, stinky, weirdo Jesus at Jewish school making birds out of dirt. And now he's supposed to be our savior. This was something that led them to uh, not only reject him, but the text says, and they took offense at him. Or another way you could translate is, and they were scandalized by him. Not just his, his presence among them, but the stories that had been going on about who he was in reality. God in our midst was a scandal to these people. Paul picks up on this in one of his letters and uses a similar term for the fact that the gospel is a stumbling block to people who can't accept it. It's foolishness. And here there's this, this, this play on this idea here where the folks in Jesus' own hometown are rejecting him because they are scandalized by him. There used to be a, an old... Um, I guess you could call him a news guy named Paul Harvey. You guys familiar with Paul, Paul Harvey? He could tell stories really, really well. And he did like these really sweet news stories about people in different places. And he'd tell you a good little bit and then he'd say, and now for the rest of the story. In Mark, we just see the bare bones of what's happening here in Nazareth. Luke, thankfully, gives us the rest of this story. And I want to add a little bit more meat to the bones of what's happening in Mark chapter six. 
Luke actually takes this story and moves it to the very front of his gospel in Luke chapter four after the baptism and the temptation of Jesus and then makes this the very first thing that Jesus does in his public ministry. This is the first sermon that Jesus preaches amongst the people that he grew up with. He goes back home and he announces the kingdom in a very powerful way. I want to read some of these verses with you. It says, this is in Luke chapter four, beginning in verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the spirit and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, he went back home. He went to this place, the same place that he's in in Mark chapter six, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Some people would say that in normal synagogue type services, the scroll would be read and then someone would either comment on it or they would just let the text speak for the, for the text itself. Jesus here is given a text to preach or to do a sermon in, in some sense and he's given the prophet Isaiah. This prophet was one that was well known at this time because from chapters 40 through 66, the prophet is announcing hope and the prophet is announcing peace, and the prophet is announcing these great concepts of what God would do when he would restore all of the world to what it should be. For a people that's in the midst of oppression and the people that is under the thumb of Rome, these were the texts that they knew and that they clung to for life itself. I don't know when you guys go through stuff, if you like whip open your Bible and go to the Psalms and you hang out with the Lament Psalms and you pray these really powerful prayers, or if, um, you go to the gospels to hear about Jesus, but for, for, the, for the ancient uh, Jewish community, the book of Isaiah was so very important to them. It says, unrolling it, he found the place. He looks in particular for this one passage. And he begins to read. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus, dipping into the prophet Isaiah, reading a very familiar text that everyone knew and everyone appreciated and everyone was waiting for the fulfillment of that text. It says, he rolls up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. Remember, this is the weird guy that makes birds out of dirt, maybe, or he's, he's just, he's, he's Jesus, you know? And he, he stands up to teach, and everyone has, has heard these stories about his power and his miracles and his teachings, and they're wondering what he's going to do. Everyone is gripped to see what happens next, much like you right now, palm of my hand. <laughs> maybe not, okay? I know it's, it's late in the evening, and my voice is very soothing, and it's lulling some of you out, but stay with me for a second. Everyone was fastened on him and he begins by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Like you can't do that, Jesus. He, just, he, can, he reads this text, one that they knew so well, and he says, uh, today I'm, I'm doing that, that the bit about bringing the kingdom and helping prisoners be freed and blind people to see. Um, I'm gonna take care of that. Okay, here, here's a scroll. You get it. 
Like this, this, is, a, this is a crazy story and, and it's, it's, an, it's an offer of good news to the poor, freedom for prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, the oppressed will be released and it's the year of the Lord's favor is being announced. This is not you go to heaven when you die. This is not just believe these things and stop sinning so that when you die, you'll, you'll be okay. This is I'm changing the whole fabric of human history and it's starting right now with you. The lame will walk, the blind will see. And I've come to announce a, a message to the poor and the broken and the marginalized and the oppressed. The ones that you all are pushing out of the synagogue, that's the people that I'm ministering to. That's, those are the people that God wants us to minister to according to the prophet of Isaiah. And I'm gonna take care of that through my person and my work and ultimately my death and resurrection for you. It's this teaching that's completely and utterly radical. It's the good news of the kingdom that's bringing about an impact right here and right now. Think about that for two seconds as we sit here in the moment and, and wonder to yourself if your faith, if your relationship with Jesus has any impact on the world around you or if this is just something that we do so that when we die, we go to heaven. This is, for Jesus, it's the good news of the kingdom. It's here, it's now, it's for us. This is also good news that for an, this ancient audience, it didn't look familiar. Yes, they were expecting Isaiah to be fulfilled, but not in the way that Jesus is talking about. Not for those people necessarily. They, they wouldn't have seen this, this good news coming through Jesus, especially in the way that he's going about doing it. They thought, as you all probably well know, some guy on a horse is gonna show up with a really big sword and he's gonna completely end the Roman Empire. But Jesus came as a very strange servant who taught things like the first will be last and the last will be first, who taught things like whatever you do to the least of these, you've done unto me who taught and modeled a table that was filled with people who had been rejected by the world around them. It continues, all the people there spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. But in a weird turn, they began to ask the same questions that we see in Mark chapter six. Isn't this Joseph's son? Understand, not Mary's son, here we're back to Joseph. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Jesus said to them, and this is where Jesus steps into a world of, of danger and subversion, and I want you to hear this because I think for, for most of us, we would not hear the implications of this because we're so far removed from the context in which Jesus is talking. He says, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. In other words, do something here to, to prove that the things that are being said about you are actually true. And you'll tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard you did in Capernaum. Do something for us, Jesus, so that we can believe what you're doing because we know that you were that little smelly weird kid and now you're all grown up and we're struggling to, to believe that the stories about you are, are true and that we should trust you. He says, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown and this is where Luke gives us even more to the story. He says, I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time. When the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land, 
yet Elijah was not sent to any of them. Elijah instead was sent to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon, not Israel. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. Now the only, the only um, analogy that I can draw for this, particularly with Naaman, at the time, Naaman was an, a, a commander in the army of the world's power, the one who had done complete and utter damage to Israel and Judah, the one who everyone was fearing, the one that was going to potentially bring an end to God's people. And in this story, Elisha goes and heals him. This is the leader of Al-Qaeda. This is the leader of ISIS. This is the person that seems to be the one who is bringing about damage and havoc upon people, God's people and other people, and the prophet goes and heals him. What's even weirder about that story is Naaman had taken slaves in other battles with Israel, and there's a little Israelite slave girl that upon seeing her master Naaman, the world's military leader at the time, become infected with leprosy, whatever that means, it's probably not akin to leprosy as we know it today, but some various skin disease um, that at the time, at least in, in an Israelite setting, would have rendered him unclean. Who knows what it would have done in, uh, in other sorts of law codes. But here we see a man who's, who's suffering, and his little slave girl says, I know a guy that can fix that. A girl who had been taken from her home and her people by a terrorist says, I know a guy who can heal you. This is a strange story, and now Jesus is is quoting uh, from the Old Testament, looking at these two specific examples where he says, these big-time prophets, Elijah and Elisha, yeah, they did great stuff, but sometimes they went outside of the Israelite people, and they healed folks that you wouldn't expect them to heal. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. Oh, no, you didn't, Jesus. Those are fighting words. I don't know what they did in the first century. That, that was like circa 2005 or so. With the, oh, no, you didn't. But when they heard this bit of Jesus' teaching, the one that includes people that shouldn't be included, the one where, where God's mercy is being bestowed to terrorists, they get ticked. This story gets weird too, and some of you know the ending. They got up, they drove him out of town, they took him up to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off, but Jesus walked right through the crowd. I don't understand that. I mean, he's Jesus, but still at the same time, like they take him up there and then somehow he maneuvers his way through the crowd and then we move on to a different story in the gospel. The cry of the people that were hearing Jesus teach, the thing that made them furious, it's not for them. This gospel, this kingdom, this good news, it's not for those people. They deserve something different. It's our good news, not to be shared. 
It's not for the widow at Zarephath. It's not for Naaman, the commander of the wrong side of the military fence. It's for us. Jesus, you've lost it. Why would you be talking about this? Jesus simply replies in so many words, it is not just for you. I want to take some of these loose ends and tie them up with the events of this past week. And I, I just want to make this disclaimer that I'm probably not the guy to be talking about this. I hope that becomes clear as, as this comes to light. This is from um, a writer named Austin Channing. She says, I wrote on Twitter that every church in America should be talking about this shooting on Sunday. But you know what? My real fear isn't that churches will ignore the shooting. My fear is that churches will underestimate it. I fear that it will alter one Sunday's plans and nothing else. I fear that the words will be reduced to one lone shooter, to one moment of silence, to one prayer. I fear that it will change nothing about every Sunday thereafter, that it will inspire nothing of lasting significance, that no one will make a declaration to kick racism out of the pews. My real fear is that this moment will slip by just as so many others have, that white churches will refuse to see their own reflection or that they will and simply turn away. All the people who heard this were furious. Because I haven't done anything wrong. This isn't about me. It's about that person over there. This has nothing to do with us. And all the people were furious. I'm accepting. I'm loving. I, it's, it's, it's not about color. It's not about orientation. It's not about uh, sinfulness. It's not about this. It's not about that. I'm, I'm, in, I'm inclusive. It's, it's okay. And all the people furious. The way at times we live is this is our good news. It's not that weird person over there's good news. It's not the person that might make me feel uncomfortable's good news. It's not the person that I've written off because they're this, that, or the other things good news. This is something that I'm controlling and I'm in charge of and I'm the one who gets to be the arbiter of who's in and who's out. What Austin Channing is bringing to light here is this potential moment where you'll see on your Facebook feeds for a day, for an hour, for a moment, a unity amongst churches where we begin to fight for the same thing. But what she fears is that this will only be a day, a moment, an instance where the trendy thing is to share this link or that link and the trendy thing is to post this thing or that thing, but it doesn't necessarily impact who we are. The way that our faith should be informing us is it should be a deep-seated transformation something that looks completely different than what the world is projecting, something that looks completely different than the eastern shore is projecting. When we read about Jesus in this moment of history, what we see is inclusion. What we see is mercy and love and forgiveness. 
but the way that the church universal has acted that out has been less than. I want to be very clear about this in this moment. This is not where I get to stand up here with a clicker and point my fingers at you and say, therefore, you need to go do something. This whole week, and not even just this week, but months and years of seeing tension, seeing lack of trust and suspicion, seeing hatred and prejudice has caused me to sit and reflect and see where Jesus has not transformed who I am. I hope that in this moment that the questions that we begin to raise are more focused at us and our struggle and our presuppositions and our lack of love. The confession that we read earlier was weighty. And I'm sure there's a couple things in there that might have tripped some of you up and you just kind of focused on those things. And I, I don't want that to be the point necessarily this evening, but I want you to hear the heart of this confession. Um, it says, Lord Jesus Christ, open our hands and our hearts to love as you loved and to care as you cared. The way that Jesus did this was multifaceted. This is not just a, an open arms policy where everyone's welcome and I don't have a backbone and nobody cares about sin. This is not who Jesus is. The way that he loved, he was able to call sin, sin, yet he was so compelling and he was so merciful and good that people wanted to be around him. Which is good news for us because we're all sinful. Strengthen us to include in our prayers and our fellowship. Strengthen us to include in our prayers assumes that we are in fact praying and that we are in fact praying for people outside of our own sphere of relationship. And strengthen us to include in our fellowship, at our tables, at our, um, in our lives, people who feel excluded because of these things. Race, religion, and I would add, or lack thereof, sexuality, gender, age, handicap. Strengthen us to include in our prayers and in our fellowship people that don't look like us, act like us, think like us, because that's what Jesus was all about. Whatever it is that creates barriers between people, strengthen us and give us courage and give us grace to include those people. For some of you, this is not like this theoretical thing about people out there somewhere. This is about your own family members that you cannot forgive. This is about your own friends that have burned you and you no longer have fellowship with. This is about people that are not this ambiguous group out there. It's about the people that are in your life and you can't get over the things that they've done to you. Strengthen us to include in our prayers and in our fellowship whatever creates barriers between people. Each week when I talk about communion, it's 
pause for a moment. If you need to step outside and shoot a text, craft an email, make a call, get a a carrier pigeon to send a note to someone, whatever it is, the things that you have brought up against people, people that have hurt you, remove the barrier. The prayer continues. Lord Jesus Christ, help us to accept people as you accept them, as people made in the image of God and precious to God. It's very difficult to be racist. It's very difficult to act out prejudice. It's very difficult to allow your deep-seated skepticism and potentially even hatred of people to gain a root in your life if you see everyone as a person created in the image and likeness of God. This is our good news. Jesus says, no, it isn't. It's not just for you. It's not just about where you're gonna go when you die. This is a good news that will truly change the world. It is my hope and my prayer that not only um, me as an individual, but we collectively as the body begin to grapple with what this looks like for a community that is following Jesus with everything that they have, striving for personal transformation to allow folks on the margins and the outskirts to find a place at our table because that is what Jesus expects from us. To do anything less is shortchanging the gospel and to do anything less is shortchanging the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf for the forgiveness of sins and the restoration of the entire world.